Uh, truly, the Lord is our all in all. Amen. We praise God for this worship experience thus far, and we uh, are just thankful for his presence, uh, for his presence being here with us this morning. As we uh, get ready to go to God's word, uh, I just want to say that this is a picture of, of what a Christian uh, looks like. Uh, this is how, as, as Christians, uh, we should think of ourselves. Uh, we are people under the authority of God's word. Amen? We are under God's authority. So whatever scripture says and whatever God says, that is what we apply to our hearts and to our lives. Amen? So we don't put it under our feet or it's not even on our side, equal with us. It is over us. Amen? So we are getting ready to hear from God by going to his word to see what he has to say about life. Amen? in order that we could find life. So if you could stand to your feet and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 25. Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. We praise God for that song, reminding us, amen, that Jesus is our all in all. The Apostle Paul says that in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. Today we'll be talking uh, from the subject, taking authority over spiritual barrenness. Taking authority over spiritual barrenness. Amen. The precious, authentic, sufficient, awe-inspiring word of Christ reads. On the following day... When they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of, of prayer? For all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word, which is our authority. Father, I pray for the person in this room who does not have your word as their authority who does not know your gospel, your good news that frees us from the bondage of self and sin. I pray, Father God, that today, Lord, that you would allow a seed to be planted or watered or that you would bring the harvest into fruition. Father, I pray for those of us who confess your word to be our authority, but who are not living that way. I pray, Father God, that you would take over our hearts and give us fruit, Lord, And allow us to live under your authority. I pray for that person who has come to be entertained, Father God. I pray, Father God, that you would change their perspective and allow them to see your word, not as a book of entertainment, but a book of life. A book, Father God, that points to your son. I pray, Father God, that you would allow me to minister with clarity for your sake and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last winter, my wife and I went to Chicago uh, for a few days during the Christmas holiday to visit family and to uh, bring my younger sister back to DeVille with us for a little while. And on Christmas Eve, we uh, drove back to Louisville. And while we were driving, we all got a little hungry. I know um, I was really hungry. And I looked over at an exit sign, and it it said that there was a White Castles coming up soon. And I got really excited, because I was just telling my wife how I've had had that craving. You know what you crave. I had a craving for White Castles. So I'm getting real excited. We come up on an exit. We get off, and we drive up to the White Castles. I am grinning from ear to ear. I'm about to kill me some sliders. So we're waiting in line, and there's a car in front of us, and uh, he's taking his order, and he finishes taking his order, and he goes up to the window to get his food, and we just sit there, and we're just waiting on someone to, to come and to take our order, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And I was at that point when you're kind of getting upset, and I'm like, okay, I need to drive up and tell them about their customer service, right? But all of a sudden, the lights went off. And I knew that they had just closed. And I remember being so upset. I'm like, what in the world just happened? No, they didn't just close on us. So we drive up to the front window, and it's clear that they've closed. And we drive off, and I'm looking through my rearview mirror, looking at it like, what a shame. I'm astonished. It was around 6 o'clock they closed for Christmas Eve, amen? My wife and my youngest sister was just laughing hysterically for the next 10 minutes. And we had to settle. I think it was for like Subway or something like that. Amen. Uh, But but I I remember that very vividly, those feelings, those emotions, anger turned to laughter. And as I think about the text that we're reading today, I could kind of see how how Christ uh, must have felt. The Bible says that on the following day that 
that Jesus uh, leaves Bethany and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree and leaf. Now they were in Bethany hanging out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're headed to Jerusalem for Passover. And all of a sudden, while they're headed to Jerusalem for Passover, Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf. And he begins to move towards that fig tree. Now, it's important for us to to know that in Palestine and throughout the Middle East, that fig trees are very common. They're all over the place. It's also important for us to know that Mark lets us know that this fig tree was in leaf. Fruit on a fig tree begins to appear about the same time that leaves appear. Sometimes the fruit appears a little before the leaves and sometimes it appears a little after. But whenever a person saw a leaf on a fig tree, it was a sign that there was some fruit there. Now, it didn't mean that the fruit was mature. It simply meant that there was some fruit there, that the the tree was now edible. So when Jesus goes up to this fig tree, he pulls in the drive-thru, and the Bible says that he lifts up the leaf. He is checking out this fig tree, and all of a sudden, he notices that there's no fruit on it. There's no fruit on the tree. He, he, he is observing this tree that has this leaf. He has these hunger pains. And all of a sudden, he realizes that this restaurant is closed. And he gets upset. And what does he do? He curses the fig tree. The Bible says that he looks at it in the presence of his disciples. And he says, may no one ever eat of you again. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I felt with that white castle. Man, I should have went in there and said, man, may no one ever eat a greasy burger from you again. And that's what Jesus did. He spoke. No one ever eat of you again. Now, I can just imagine what the disciples are thinking. Out of all the gospel accounts, this is the only time where Jesus curses something and, and it withers. This is the only miracle of destruction. Now, they've seen him upset before. But to see him like this, they probably would have been thinking like, man, he must really be hungry. And some liberals and some scholars and and even some people who don't believe in the Bible, they look at this and they say, see, Jesus was not perfect. Jesus was not God. Look how petty he is. He gets upset at a fig tree and curses a fig tree because there's no fruit on it. And then on top of that, Mark lets us know that it was not the season for it to be mature. So Jesus is not who he says he is because he's acting rash and childish. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is not cursing this fig tree uh, because he is is so hungry and because he doesn't have self-control. He's not cursing this tree because because he's he's just delirious uh, because he hasn't had food. Rather, Jesus is using this as a teachable moment. He is teaching his disciples something. He is showing me and you something important. Jesus acting childish? Are you serious? Because he's hungry? We're talking about Jesus. The one who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and who was tempted by Satan with some Panera bread and didn't eat any. Jesus. Hungry? We're talking about Jesus. The one who often pressed through hunger pains to minister to the crowds. 
You remember in, in John chapter 4 how Jesus was ministering to a Samaritan woman and his disciples left to go get food and he was preaching the gospel to her and then they came back and she was gone and they said, Rabbi, we've got something for you to eat. And he said, eat, eat. He said, no, the will of my father is my food. Jesus. Jesus, the one who, who Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4. When he's talking about how he has been in ministry and he's placed, he has been in situations where he was hungry, but how he learned to be content in all things. Paul, how have you learned to be content when you've got hunger pains? I've learned to be content because of Jesus, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, this was not a, a rash thing. No, this was Jesus teaching his disciples, using this as a teachable moment, as he often does. And why is this a teachable moment? It's a teachable moment because of what the fig tree represents in Israel. In Israel. The fig tree in the Old Testament was often used as a symbol of Israel. The prophets would often talk about Israel in terms of a tree. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, the prophet says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away. Speaking of Israel, having no fruit. He continues in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them sword and famine and pestilence, and I will make them like the vile figs that are so rotten that they cannot be eaten. So in essence, Jesus curses this fig tree as an object lesson to signify how Emmanuel, how God had come down in the person of Jesus and he has been amongst Israel and he has been looking for fruit amongst Israel, but he has found none. He was hungry for true worshipers. He was hungry for people who truly adored him. He was, he was hungry for someone who would worship him in spirit and in truth, but he could not find any. Instead of find, finding fruit, all he found was leaves. Leaves, but no fruit. Leaves, but no fruit. There are many Christians who are just like this fig tree. Many professing Christians who are, are just like Israel. Many people who have leaves, but no fruit. A religion that has leaves, but no fruit, is, is a religion of no substance. Leaves but no fruit says that everything looks good on the outside, but there's no true evidence of God's spirit working in that person's life. Go through the motions with ritual. We come to church on Sunday morning. We may even come to Wednesday and Sunday school. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit being evident in a person's life, supernaturally making that person to look more and more progressively like Jesus, is leaves, but no fruit. But you know, all of us in some way is like this fig tree. Every single person in this church has a branch in their life, an area in their life that when God expects it, he pulls up that leaf and there's no fruit under it. Because none of us have arrived. 
We've all got areas to mature in, areas to grow in, areas where we can look more like Christ. So the question is, when there is spiritual barrenness and in areas of our lives where we don't see God's spirit just working and and bursting forth fruit, what do we do? What do we do when our spiritual lives are barren? Well, that's what we're about to see. So we see in this text that the the scene shifts from this fig tree to the temple. And some people want to disconnect these stories, but the way that Mark writes this, by putting the temple in, in between the story of the fig tree and the disciples seeing that it has withered on the way back shows us that, 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 Mark, that, G, that Mark got it, that, that Peter got it, that Jesus was making a point and that this point is continuing to be made. So the Bible says that Jesus then leaves the fig tree and he goes into the temple. And when he goes into the temple, he goes with guns ablazing, so to speak. He goes and he's flipping over money tables. He is telling people to stop carrying things. He is throwing a fit. He's throwing a fit. So what, what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, in order for us to understand the weight of this passage, we must understand the weight of the temple in Jewish worship. The temple was, was the, the Mecca, so to speak. The temple was the heart of Jerusalem. It was the heart of Israel. In fact, it was set right in the middle of the city. Imagine someone going to the White House, a dignitary, someone that people respect, and all of a sudden, this dignitary, this person, is throwing tables over, taking off pictures of George Washington. Imagine they're just throwing a fit. You know the news coverage that that would get? That's similar to what Jesus is doing here. The temple is so important to them because the temple signified God's presence. It signified access to God. People went to the temple to worship. They went to the temple to make sacrifices. When the temple was built and flourishing and doing well, people assumed that it was doing well because Israel was doing well. Because Israel was pleasing God. During the exile when there was no temple, when we read in the Psalms and Lamentations about the exile and the temple was torn down, it is an indictment against Israel's religion. People went to the temple believing that if they just did what they were supposed to do at the temple, if they just went during Passover and made these necessary sacrifices, that they were all right with God. Kind of how we think about church. Like, if I could just go to church Sunday after Sunday or three Sundays out of month or two Sundays out of the month or uh, Christmas, Easter, and uh, whatever, then I'm okay because the church is where God's presence is. I, am I telling the truth? Amen? We come to church, and what do we say? When we're in church, oh, I can't believe you said that in church. Why? Because we think that God is more present on a Sunday morning or Wednesday morning in this building than he is the rest of the week in our lives. So they had this view, this wrong view of worship, and their religion was a leaf religion. It was all about ritual, and it was quite self-centered. And that's what Jesus is getting to in this passage. He goes to the heart of Israel. He goes to the heart of Jerusalem. He goes to their pride and their joy, the place that they take most pride in, and he begins in a way to curse their religion. 
Look at what he says. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. What is he saying there? The temple was huge. It was, it was huge. So when Jesus is doing this, when he's turning over tables and stuff like this, he probably really isn't making a, a real, real big scene. There's all kind of areas of the temple. Also, the temple had police. They had Roman police, and they also had Jewish police. And if anyone did anything that was out of place, they would simply just arrest them. But they did not arrest Jesus. And the Bible says in the next verse, why? Because people were astonished at his teaching. So they are not going to arrest them. They're not going to go against them because they're afraid that the crowds would be upset because he is teaching in a way that no one has ever experienced. But while he's teaching, he's teaching a very important lesson. He's pointing us and he's pointing them back to the prophet Isaiah, who pretty much says these very words. See, the temple had different levels to it. It had the outer court, the inner court, and then the, the holy place or the holies of holies. But the outer court had levels to it. The first level was for Gentiles. It was for those who were not born Jews. This was the only place that they could come and worship God, the God Yahweh at. And then after the Gentiles court, it was the court for women. And then after the women's court, it was the court for men. And then after that, it was the, the inner court. And then after the inner court, it was the holies of holies. So what Jesus is saying is that this area that you have made, they had set up camp in the Gentiles area the place where non-Jews came to worship. And they made that area a loud area, an area of commerce, an area that was all about money. They were scheming people and overcharging people for the sacrifices that they were getting ready to make. So the area of the Gentiles became about their own personal profit. But see, what they missed was was God loved the Gentiles. God wanted everyone to come into his house and to be able to worship freely. God wanted everyone to know the one true God of Israel. He wanted everyone to be intimate with him and have a relationship with him. He, he, he wanted people who did not deserve a relationship with him to, to be overwhelmed by his love and his grace and to be able to come and to bow before him and to worship him. But they edged them out because they were self-centered and they were about money. They had a religion of leaves. So what is God doing here? God, through Jesus, is teaching us a, a valuable lesson. And he's doing something that's very important and very specific. God is moving his people away from a belief system that says worship happens at a particular location. God is relieving and moving his people away from the idea that says at the temple is where you really have access to God. And he is trying to show them that true access to God comes through a personal relationship with his son. He is getting them ready for the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make so that they would be able to respond against this idea that bullocks and lambs and goats is what makes a person right and see that the blood of Jesus is what makes a person right. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1 through 2, uh, it's just a, a funny passage. Disciples are standing back and they're looking at the temple and they say to Jesus, oh my goodness, what a beautiful edifice. And Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, but this is about to be destroyed. 
He says, there will not be one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then in AD 80, we see that this temple, the temple was destroyed. Just like that fig tree, Jesus curses the temple. And just like that fig tree, the temple eventually withers. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus proclaims that if you destroy this temple, he said, in three days, I will raise it up again. And everybody around him thought that he was talking about this physical temple, the temple that they were going to worship in. But he was talking about his own body. He was trying to show them that I am the true temple. I am the way to God. I am the person that you worship. Remember what he told the Samaritan woman when she pointed to the mountain and said, that's where our forefathers worship? He says, no, worship doesn't happen at a place. Worship is a person. It happens when we worship a specific person. He's preparing them for a new temple that we should look to. Jesus is the true temple. He is the one that we must look to in faith. His blood is the blood that cleanses. Mark chapter 15, verse 37 through 38, Jesus is on the cross in the heat of the day, and he is dying. He is dying because he is bearing our sins. An innocent man is put to death. And right when Jesus speaks and says that it is finished, that all things are done, that his job on earth has been done, the Bible says that a veil in the same temple, the place that separated the inner court from the holies of holies, that it was, it was split in two, signifying that every single believer, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus now has full access to God. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the one we must look to in faith. If we are going to have fruitful, fruitful lives and a fruitful relationship with God. But you know, the New Testament takes it farther than that. It doesn't just say that Jesus is, our, is the temple. The New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6 through 9, it says that you are the temple of God. Those who have put their faith in Jesus now have God indwelling in them. The church has the Holy Spirit dwelling over it dwelling within it and now we are the very people of God and we carry the very presence of God on the inside of us he says we are the temple so here's what I'm saying all right this is what I'm saying I'm saying that Jesus is saying this temple your worship your pursuit of God is ritualistic it's fruitless it's leaves it's dead and he's saying that true worship is centered around me. And what Jesus wants to know today from us is are we ready and have we allowed him to come into our temple and rearrange stuff? Jesus gets angry at a few things in the Bible. One is he gets angry at leaders who are leading for their own glory. Two, we see him getting angry at fruitless, ritualistic, external religion. And Jesus is telling us for his Baptist church, he is telling us those who are visiting with us, that he is angry when we allow spiritual barrenness to rule in our temple. When we sit back and allow our walk with him to be a ritualistic, external thing. 
When we don't look to him in faith as the temple and when we are not constantly asking him to take authority of our lives and rearrange some stuff. Some of us today, God is calling us to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, maybe, maybe your heart is full of a lust for money. Jesus, stop this money changing. Whatever it is, God, take authority. Take authority in my life. Take authority over dead areas in my life. Take authority over areas of my life which are just barren. So how do we get to the point of getting rid of this spiritual barrenness? This is my main point. You can write this down. Somebody calls you at 2 a.m. Say, what did Pastor Jamal preach about? You, re- you go to your wherever it is. You turn over the page and you read this sentence to him. For my sake, amen? This is our big idea. God is calling us to get angry, get angry with our spiritual barrenness, to turn to him in faith, and to pray it away. He's calling us to get angry with our spiritual barrenness, to have faith in God, and to pray that area away. Get angry. I'm convinced that the reason why some of us have been in the same spiritual state for so long is because we aren't doing what Jesus did with the fig tree and with the temple. Jesus saw fig trees all around Israel for three years that he was walking with his disciples. He was probably thinking about this this illustration and, and waiting for the proper time to show them this. He then went up on the fig tree and he looked at it and he identified and saw its barrenness. Same thing with the temple. This wasn't the first time that Jesus went into the temple. John says, John chapter 2, early on in Jesus' ministry when it was first started, he did the same thing. The Bible says that he then went back and made a whip, a cord. And then he calculated the right time and went back into the temple and cleaned it up. Jesus identified the areas of barrenness first. And then he took authority of it. It's time that we get angry with our state of barrenness. Angry, not depressed. Not depressed. I'm not telling you go home and say, woe is me. I'm saying angry. Angry with your sin. Not guilty. Not feeling condemned. But angry, having a righteous indignation. Well, I, well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the, the Son of God, is angry over barrenness. But I, I thought anger was a sin. No, the Bible does not say that anger is a sin. The Bible, in fact, says be angry but sin not. There's a such thing as righteous indignation. There's a such thing as a, a righteous anger. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What he's saying is not the anger, just every instance of anger, but what he's saying is self-centered, self-glorifying anger does not produce righteousness. But there is a such thing as a God-centered anger. And that's what we need to get. That's what God is calling us to. And if we're going to get angry at the areas of sin, the first thing that we need to do is we need to go into a moment, a season of observation and identification. We need to look at our lives in light of God's most holy word, and we need to say, what areas of my life is there no fruit at? 
Just like Jesus looked at that fig tree, just like he checked out what was going on in the temple, we need to go home and we need to say, what areas am I falling short in? Let's look at the text. Verse number 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So the Bible says that they come back up on this fig tree and all of a sudden Peter the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, he says, Jesus, look, man, this is dope. Remember that tree from the other day? It withered. And Jesus responds by saying, have faith in God. T speak to this mountain and say, be thou removed, and it shall be removed. What is he saying? He's saying, speak to areas of your life that is barren, and it will be moved. Barrenness is a mountain. Now what we want to do is we want to take this verse and we want to take it out of context and we want to run with it. We want to use it at prayer meetings and we want to use it amongst our family to say that God is calling me to get a new house or a new car. But in context, Jesus is talking about spiritual barrenness. He's talking about things and areas of our life that need to go for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Notice what he says. Speak to the mountain. Why is it a mountain? It's a mountain because it's something that we can't move in our own strength. Our areas of weakness, our areas of shortcomings, got news for you, you cannot get over it in your own strength. Some of us, we're dealing with a mountain that's called laziness. Spiritual laziness. Our lives are falling apart because our Bibles aren't. And let's be real. You've tried different things. You, you've tried different things to get over this laziness, and you've made lists, and you've did this, but you, you find yourself on the couch each evening watching television rather than picking up God's Word. Why? Because it's a mountain. Anything we try to do without God is a mountain. Lack of loving your wife in an understanding way is a mountain. The lack of unconditionally respecting your husband is a mountain. The inability to model love to your co-workers who are tapping on your nerve is a mountain. Caring, not caring about the loss who is in your family is a mountain. Not being a man of integrity and character when no one else is around but that computer screen and that website is a mountain. You don't have to say amen, amen. We have mountains in our life that will only lead by looking to Jesus. Our natural responses to our, our mountains, a lot of times, is, is number one, to just complain about it. Complain about it, don't we? We complain about these mountains. We also try to do, get rid of them in our own strength. That doesn't work, but, but many of us, what we do is we ignore it. 
We ignore these areas of our life and we start to explain them away. And we start to say stuff like, you know what? God knows my heart. (laughs) Or you know what we say? Well, this is just me. That's just how I am. So you're a loud, obnoxious, (laughs) rude person. I just speak my mind, and if you don't like it, I tell people, if you don't like it, you can hit the door, but that's just me. But is that what God's word says? That, is that how he, it says we should be? So what's happened is this mountain in our life of self-control and love and speaking in a way that edifies people has now become what we like to, what we find our pride in. It's now become our identity. As we continue in the text, Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Faith. The way that we get over our spiritual barrenness, fruitlessness, fruitless seasons. Some of us are just going through a fruitless season. God has used you, but you're not where you once were. It's not that you don't love the Lord. We all got some barrenness. The way that we get over That fruitlessness, he said, is by having faith in God. Faith, an attitude that says, for all I take him. Faith, an attitude that says, I will obey and trust God in spite of my fear, in spite of my feelings. Faith, that takes facts, but says facts plus God equals victory. Faith, that looks back at God's faithfulness and acts on what he already has done. Jesus says, have faith in God. Hear what he says. He has says, have faith in God. He doesn't say, have faith in yourself, and he doesn't say, have faith in faith. See, sometimes, and some of us, we're feeling burdened because you're saying, I've been praying that God would help me. I've been praying that God would do this in my life. I've been praying that there will be some spiritual fruit in certain areas, but I don't see it happening. Maybe it's because of my faith. Listen, even as we read this text, we can read this text and think that Jesus is saying that our faith needs to be perfect, but that is not what he is saying. He says, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And we hear that and we hear what it's saying, that the, this part that says that does not doubt in our heart, and we take that to mean that the only way that God is going to move mountains is if my faith is perfect. And that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. How do we know that's not what he's saying? Because that's not what he's been teaching. A few chapters earlier, we see a man who has a son that's demon-possessed. And this man cries out to Jesus. Jesus says, have faith in God. And he says, okay, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's faith. Faith says, God, I believe that you can do it. God, I believe that you can make a way. Now, the areas of my heart that's doubting, it's yours. You take it. You take it and you do something with it. You take it and you shape it. We don't put our faith in faith. We put our faith in Jesus. It's kind of like a windshield. When you're driving, you do not have to have a perfect windshield to see out of the windshield. Your windshield can have cracks because you were driving on the highway in a truck and a rock and big story, long story, right? It can have cracks. But you can still see out of it if you're looking at the objects that's in front of you. 
But to have faith in faith is to look at that windshield, look at that crack, and to stay there and say, the reason I can't drive is because this crack is in it. No, look past the crack and say, God, I'm giving you this crack in my faith windshield. Now, can you do something with it? Jesus isn't saying that you need perfect faith. He's saying that you need to have faith in God. And when we put our faith in God, the spiritual areas of our lives that's dead will come alive. He says will. He doesn't say it might. Look at this. He is speaking with assurance. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in prayer. How in the world can he say that? Because what he's talking about in this passage isn't natural things. It isn't a Mercedes Benz. It isn't, a fa- it isn't making your name famous or, or doing something that's going to benefit you. What he's talking about is praying about stuff that God cares about in your life. He's saying if you come to God and ask God for more patience, you can have faith that God is going to make sure that you have more patience. Why? Because that's the type of stuff that turns God on. Because it's going to help his name and his fame and his glory to be renowned. God wants you to be a good wife. God wants you to be a good husband. God wants you to stay pure and not to give yourself away before marriage. God wants you to be victorious and wants you to worship. He wants you to lift up your hands in worship and to be free to testify to the world. If you pray for boldness, if you pray that God would make you a husband in which his wife can respect and his children can be looked up to, God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line if you pray he says pray when was the last time you prayed for one of the the evidence of the fruit of the spirit when was the last time you prayed Lord help me to become long suffering so a lot of times in our prayers what we pray is Lord fire this person so I can have peace Lord, stop me before I backhand. Lord, help me to figure out how I can divorce this man and save face. Praying against God's will. What is God's will? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul tells us God's will. He said, your sanctification is the will of God. Sanctification, big word that simply means your progressive Uh, growing to look more like Jesus is God's will. You looking more and more like Jesus over a period of time is more like Jesus. I guarantee you, if you go home, you put faith in God, you identify that area that you're weak in, and you cry out to God and say, God, help me in that area, I guarantee that God is going to make a way. Why? Because he is shaping you and conforming you to look more like Jesus. And he's going to say, oh, man, you you finally asked. You finally invited me into your space. You finally invited me into your temple. You finally allowed me to come in and rearrange some stuff. I've been waiting on you, girl, to to ask me this question. Be thou removed. A great reformer was in a meeting one day, and a gentleman who was very persuasive in speech was trying to teach a doctrine, uh, a part of the Bible, and he 
wasn't teaching it truthfully and faithfully. And he's in a room full of men, very persuasive. Everyone is kind of nodding their head thinking this guy has it right. He's finally giving us light on the subject. So this, this great reformer was sitting down and he was writing profusely, getting ready to rebuttal what this guy has said. And the story goes that he's writing profusely. He's turning things and writing profusely, turning things and writing profusely. And finally, he stands up to speak. The story goes that this man wisely and spirit with a, with a, with a spirit-filledness about him stands up and refutes what this other guy has said. He brought truth into the room, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Everyone starts saying, wow, no, that's the truth. Afterwards, everyone ran up to him and said, can we see your notes? You were writing profusely. How did you do that? Can we see your notes? And he shows it to them. And do you know what his notes consisted of? Lord, give me light. 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 Over and over and over again, he was praying to God, God, give me what I need in order to help these people walk in truth. When we pray what God's will is, we can count on God giving us light. We can count on him showing us this is how you overcome this. We can count on him bringing somebody into our lives that's going to help us to get over this sin issue. Why? Because it's kingdom business. It's his will. It's his will. The only thing that can stop us from moving forth in this way, the only thing that can stop you and me from being heard by God is faithlessness and a lack of forgiveness. Some of us, we've been crying out for God to help and to give us light. And it's like our prayers are just going to a, a brass ceiling. We say, why won't the Lord listen to me? Maybe the Lord doesn't love me. Maybe the Lord doesn't care. But again, we haven't fallen under the authority of the scriptures. It's amazing to me. And all of Jesus' major discourses about prayer. The majority of the time, Jesus comes back to the issue of forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then after he closes the prayer, the next three verses, he explains why he prayed about forgiveness. He does the same thing here. He says, have faith in God. Pray and the mountain will be removed. But look at what he adds. He adds, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is teaching us a valuable lesson here that unforgiveness, unforgiveness, is an enemy to prayer because it's an enemy to God. Many of us aren't seeing fruit in our lives. We've been the same way spiritually for 20 years. We can't find five books of the Bible. But we come to church week after week. We're not growing. People, aren't looking, people have never looked at our lives and said, man, you're like a new person. People aren't inspired. 
They're not coming to know Jesus through you or asking questions about Jesus to you because it, it seems like you're stifled, like you're stale. Maybe you are harvesting and harboring unforgiveness. The word forgive in the Greek literally means to hurl away violently. It's a picture of a, of a dump truck taking garbage from someone's house, throwing it in the back, then taking it away where that person can't see it anymore. Unforgiveness is a picture of that dump truck doing that and then bringing that same trash back in front of that house the next day. I know you're hurt. I know what he said to you really offended you. I know your baby mama, your baby daddy get on your last nerve. I understand. She drank the last of the Kool-Aid five years ago. But if you are a believer in God, if you have asked Christ into your temple, if you've looked to him by faith, he gives you divine, supernatural power to look at those offenses and to forgive them. In Matthew chapter 18, we see an incredible story about a servant, a man who... Uh, a king who wished to settle all his accounts with his servants. So he goes up to one particular guy who owes him about 20 years worth of wages. 20 years worth of wages. And he tells him, if you don't pay up now, I am going to sell you and your family into slavery. The Bible says that this man begged for mercy, begged for forgiveness, begged for time. And his king was merciful and let him free. Right after he was let free, the Bible says that he went and found a servant that owed him some money. It wasn't even comparable. It was like a, a year's worth of labor. And he goes and he puts his hands around that servant's neck and he's, give me my money. People who knew that this man had been forgiven goes back and tells the king, and the king curses this man. That is a picture. That is a picture of what it's like as a Christian when we refuse not to forgive someone. We have been forgiven of our sins. When we look to faith in Jesus Christ, he takes our sins and he hurls it away violently. He throws it in the sea of forgiveness. He gives us the grace to be able to live in him as new people, people where the past no longer matters. But when we don't offer people forgiveness, we show that we have selfishly, selfishly looked to Christ. We show that we are not willing to be an example of Christ. We show that the love of Christ and the grace of Christ really have not affected us in a way that it should. There are some people that you are holding in your heart like this. There are some people. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, brother. <laughs> there are. There are some people in your heart, and they don't even know it. Maybe they know it by your body language, your fake smile. You're not looking them in the eye. But they know that it was something done. Something done <laughs> that you have not let go. 
and you're at home praying, crying out, God, save this, help me here, do this for me, do this for me, help me to see fruit in my life, and God is looking over there in your heart, and he's saying, you have not given me your temple. But you know what? That's a mountain. And if you pray and ask God to move that mountain in your heart today, it will be removed. If you stop and just think about the free grace of God, if you stop and think about that person and how they offended you, if you stop and meditate on the fact that that this person, what they did to you, that you have done worse to God and that you do stuff like that to him every day, if you stop and think about not only do you do that to God, but you do that to other people, you blow appointments too, You've cheated someone too. You've lied to someone too. You've been angry at someone too. If you stop and think about how God forgives you of all of that, and if you pray and say, God, help me to love and to forgive that person like that. Help me to give them grace. God will. Get emotional. Get like Jesus in his text. Get emotional and do something about your bear. Don't get depressed. Don't go into guilt and condemnation. The gospel frees you from that. But get angry. Get angry at the areas of your life that aren't measuring up to Jesus. Take one or two at a time. Don't do everything at once. And pray that mountain away. And it will be removed. Talking about a risen Savior. One who conquered death. One who conquered the grave. We're talking about a risen Savior, one who is coming back again. He has the power over that area of your life. Believe it and receive the good news. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for your word. Help us, Lord, to let people go from our grip. Help us, Father God, to look to your son in faith. Help us, Father God, to love you more than life itself. In Jesus' name. Amen.